Hello and welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast, your home for stock market news and ideas to get investing for a better return. I'm Marcus De Silva. And of course, we've got another big podcast for you today. We've got an interview with Darius McDermott, cracking chap MD at Chelsea Financial Services. And he's going to be talking to me about some really important styles of investing in shares. There's going to be three that we're going to be focusing on. I think it's just really interesting to sort of get underneath the surface a little bit of investment strategy and see how different fund managers might do things a little bit differently depending on what their kind of mandate is with the fund that they're running. But before we get into that interview, we're going to hear a few different stories. We've got the latest fund flow index so for September. So we're going to be looking at where investors are kind of putting their money in over the last month. Um, we're also going to be having a look at a move that has not been helping oil price rises. We're going to have a look at how Brits are getting on with their personal finances and also where FTSE 100 dividends are at having had quite a severe haircut last year due to the pandemic before of course we then dive into markets and companies so that you can have a bit of an update on what's been going on over the past two weeks. Okay, before we get into it, please, can I just ask you to subscribe if you haven't already and share the pod with as many friends, family, anyone you can think of. We want to make this as open to as many people as possible. You know, what we're seeing at the moment is, in particular, is lots of Brits who have cash sat in very low interest bearing accounts and we're seeing rising inflation. So their wealth is going backwards. They're losing money over the time. And the only reason they're not investing to try and get a better return is because they just don't understand this stuff and that's what we're here to try and try and help people do so um, please help us in that mission to democratize investing and and share the pod anyway let's get on to the news and i thought we'd start with the latest fund flow index from our friends at coolstone so these guys are basically looking at which fund sectors investors are putting money into and and also where they're taking it out and over the month of September what we saw was that funds focused on UK shares suffered pretty heavy selling from investors who have been spooked by multiple crises affecting the UK and I'll get on to that in just a second but basically investors sold down a net 567 million pounds worth of investments in the UK equity sector during the month, which is the second worst month for UK equity funds on Coolstone's this index's seven-year record. And it, it September really stood out because investors have really singled out UK-focused equity funds, really. And it contrasted the situation with June 2020. So that was the worst month on record for UK focused equity funds but at the same time in that month almost all equity categories you know in other places as well were being sold as well basically what investors were doing were taking profits because we'd had this very sharp sell-off at the beginning of the pandemic central banks had dived in and said here's a big fire hose of money and um, and it had supported markets and enabled this recovery I think actually it was don't quote me on this, but I think it was 127 days from 
you know, when the sell-off started to then recovering back to that point again. So it was very, very quick. And clearly, you know, investors at that time thought they'd take some money. Anyway, not only that, but it's also active funds, active UK equity funds that seem to bear the brunt of this. 98% of the selling was in active funds. There was only 2% in passive. And that's kind of consistent. Actually, what people, what investors tend to do is have passive funds as their regular ticking over, you know, their monthly kind of regular buying tends to be in passive. And then they tend to like to trade and sort of make a bit more active decisions with active funds, you know, having a look at where there's maybe opportunities that we might, you know, bring up on steps to investing. Um, and 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 so, so that is where uh, investors have, have not really been looking recently, which I thought thought was quite quite interested other thing that's quite interesting as well is that it hasn't really affected uk esg funds in fact they saw modest inflows so um it was all non-esg funds that saw the selling which i thought was quite interesting um and you know just you know saying oh the uk was the focus of this well yeah they were the ones that were pummeled because you look at the other categories emerging market funds for example saw inflows of 407 million global funds saw inflows of 805 million north american funds of 230 million and even european funds saw 37 million coming in so it's all the uk why is this well edward glynn said to us this as the reason the petrol panic, soaring inflation, empty supermarket shelves, fractured supply chains, crippling staff shortages and turmoil in gas and electricity markets are all taking their toll on investor confidence. With so much going wrong so quickly, investors have voted with their feet and dumped UK assets. Investors know that other parts of the world are also experiencing some of these difficulties, but inflows to funds focused on other regions emphasise that they realise the problems are more widespread and more acute in the UK than elsewhere. It has been an unusually hapless month for the UK. We have all strapped in for a bumpy few months of news ahead. So we should also brace for further volatility in fund flows for UK equities. Moving on, I thought we'd have a little chat about inflation. It's something that we as Brits are worrying about a little bit. I saw some some stuff from AJ Bell that basically is showing that, that people are beginning to make cutbacks to their spending because they're worrying a bit about rising costs. And Laura Souter there, the head of personal finance at AJ Bell, said that three-fifths of people are worrying about their finances already with the same number having started making spending cutbacks so most people have begun making cutbacks to luxuries that's 84 percent of us such as eating out trips and cosmetics but almost three quarters are also cutting back on their clothes spending and 58 percent have already reduced their supermarket spend so only a quarter of the poorest households as well think that cutting back will actually keep their finances on track and it's showing how many families are likely to struggle this winter and the big concerns in particular are the rising energy prices that we're seeing particularly in gas and the rising cost of food in supermarkets with the supply issues as we near winter and as christmas looms so just on the sort of energy side of things there it's been sort of quite a strong strong year really for surging prices um you know we've seen things like you know, European gas prices and, and coal sort of 
you know hit record high and you know crude's gone quite high as well that like if you look at sort of brent which is the international benchmark um we, we've seen it go through 80 dollars a barrel and it sort of started the year off at 40 dollars a barrel so uh you know it's 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 there's been some strong surges there and there's been a few reasons for that you know so some production issues we've seen less drilling from u.s shale producers some supply disruptions as well after you know following some hurricanes in the gulf of mexico and then just this bounce back in in demand really it's just been very strong really as 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 economies have sort of recovered out of out of the pandemic and it wasn't really helped this week as us oil and brent sort of hit seven three year highs respectively after opec said well do you know what we we're, we're not going to we're not going to accelerate any plans to increase oil production they'd announced a small increase I actually spoke to victoria scholar head of investment at interactive investor and she was sort of talking about this decision from opec and said said that the decision on Monday to stick to its plans to gradually increase output by four 400,000 barrels of oil per day in November until a- April has propelled oil prices sharply higher again. So it's kind of, it, it you know, people were hoping for more, really, in order to sort of ease some of those price pressures. Um, and she added, you know, the sharply bullish move, which has seen Brent rally to almost $83, and West Texas Intermediate hit the highest it has since 2014 suggests that there is an imbalance there in the market between demand and and supply there so uh yeah that wasn't that wasn't fantastic uh, news there but we there's some some more movement on prices there and I'll mention that in markets in just a sec just the final story for you then on the FTSE 100 uh dividends so uh you know the the you know UK companies are, pr- are pretty big payers of uh, dividends we've got a strong dividend market here and um but it has it was massively affected the market by by the pandemic and dividends were were very widely cut so in 2020 we saw dividends paid out of 61.8 billion whereas what's forecast for 2021 is 84.1 84.1 billion. So we we are expecting a big increase of 36% for um according to forecasts for dividends uh, for the FTSE 100 which is great to see some you know a, a nice year of dividend growth really the first since 2018 and it would put the FTSE 100 index on a yield of 4.1% which is pretty healthy in 2021 if everything goes as expected. And uh, Russ Mould, the investment director at AJ Bell, also said, you know, total payments peaked at 85.2 billion in 2018. So 2022 is expected to get tantalizingly close to that mark at 85.1 billion as corporate profits, cash flows, and confidence look to recover from the effects of the pandemic. Mould also added, though, have a little think about the concentration risk in uk in the uk markets and he added this just 10 companies are expected to generate 80 percent of 2021's dividend increase and our forecast to pay dividends worth 45.6 billion or 55 percent of the total that's forecast with 2021 just 10 companies which i think is quite amazing really he also added rio tinto and bhp billiton are the top two so income seekers might be concerned over autumn's slump in the iron ore price and the concerns over economic growth in China in particular. 
So that's something to think about. On to markets. And there's a couple of things that have been affecting markets more recently. There's the debt ceiling issue in the US and also this energy crunch, which has been affecting Europe in particular. So on the debt ceiling issue, I mean, ugh, it's this thing that sort of rears its, its head. It seems all too often we had this debate when, when Trump was in power. And it's this statutory limit of $28.4 trillion that's imposed on, on government borrowing. And under Trump, a deal was made to suspend the ceiling, the ceiling um, of borrowing for two years. And that expired in, in July. So suddenly there's this back to this, this kind of argument, really. And um, what's happened since July is, is the government had been using emergency measures and drawing on certain accounts in order to sort of pay its bills and save on cash and stuff. But it's predicted that that will run out in October. And if it runs out, then the US face, face potentially having to default on its loans, which would have just enormous ramifications as the world's largest economy. It would have this big ripple effect. It would trigger a debt crisis, similar to what we saw in Europe about a decade ago, um, starting with Greece and then Portugal and Ireland, etc. Um, and that had a big effect globally just from what was going on in Europe. So now translate that into it happening in America. We would see a ratings downgrade. It would be There would be so much mer market turmoil. There's quite a lot of financial calculations are based on very sh you know short-dated US government bonds being risk-free. So, you know, what would be the knock-on effect there? Um, and, and it could also basically lead the US and other countries around the globe to to slip into recession. So I don't think anyone really wants that, but it's become this perfect uh, partisan political football um, and an agreement just, you know, has been difficult to meet. Um, corporate America has also sort of taken this stance, it seems, a little bit against the Republicans as well. So Biden, using his quite honed political savvy, sort of lined up all these CEOs in, uh, to talk to him um, over Zoom, probably in uh, in the White House, included J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon, who, who who reiterated how how big the consequences would be, even if it was a default for just a day, um, it was sort of delay in payments or whatever. So they really needed to do something, and now the Republicans seem to have offered to kick the can down the road, um, uh, as they say, and and temporarily extend this debt ceiling until December, but. It means we're just going to be facing this problem in December. So it's a bit frustrating and, and really we, we need a proper bipartisan agreement there. Anyway, it, it has given markets some relief because um, they've been worrying about that. And also the energy, the rising energy prices. And, it, and it's been led to, you know, we've seen some risk off, as they say. So that's a classic kind of taking a bit of risk off the table means buying some bonds and selling some shares, really. Um, on the energy side of things, though, in Europe, it seems energy worries are easing a little bit. You know, I, t I spoke about Putin, uh, sorry, not Putin, about OPEC not helping. Well, Putin has stepped in and he's hinted that he could supply some more Russian gas to sort of ease um, some of the price pressures. Um, stating that he didn't think the speculative craze did anyone any good. But it has come after criticism that he sort of weaponized um, supplies, really, as, you know, Russia do have quite a hold on Europe over that. And, it, and, it, and, it, and they thought that could be ahead of this sort of crucial certification of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, which is this new pipeline that they're building directly into the EU that's going to bypass uh, the Ukraine. So, you know, maybe sort of turning the screws a little bit in order to make sure that that goes through. 
Um, and, you know, the UK has been suffering in particular, really. We, you know, large portions of our homes are heated by natural gas and we have quite limited storage capacity. So it means that we are quite at the mercy of um, what they would say is just in time sort of supply chains and deliveries. Uh, so, you know, something needs to be done there, maybe. As such, oil and gas prices have eased a little in the last few sessions of trading, following some pretty sharp rises this year. All in all, over the two weeks, the FTSE 100 is down 28 points to 7,047. The S&P 500 is down 85 points to 4,363. The stock 600 is down 12 points to 546. And the Nikkei 225 is down 2,570 points to 27,678. Finally, company news. Interesting stuff. Let's start with uh, Amazon. It was interesting to see that they've launched a new type of physical bricks and mortar store. So they they have their supermarkets, Amazon Fresh, which they've launched in London. So it's not their first foray into sort of physical stuff. But this store is going to focus on consumer goods, such as books, electronics, kitchenware, and toys. And it's a sort of bid to compete with the Currys and John Lewis's here in the UK. They're calling it Four Star. And rather cleverly, I thought, they're going to be stocking items found in their popular lists in their on their e-commerce e platform. Um, and also those that are commonly ordered as gifts. So I thought it was quite interesting that, you know, if you sort of click that box and sort of say, is this a gift type thing? It's actually giving them data of what we sort of commonly send out as gifts. And they're sort of using that data to sort of stock this store. So I, I mean, I thought that was that was quite interesting. Be interesting to see um, how much of a success it is. And uh, the second story, let's have a look at Hotel Chocolat. It's uh, these guys, I mean, I love their chocolates. Uh, they did suffer quite a bit under COVID. Their their physical stores had to close for six months. Um, so that, that wasn't really great for them. But they've, they've sort of released their latest trading update and um, it's been better than expected, really. They have had this big push towards digital, which seems to have been pretty successful. 70% of their revenues now come from digital as well, as well as other sort of continuity products and partners. And in particular, what it's trying to do is just it's try to shift this sort of focus on its UK stores towards global online, really. And, and a big effort to sort of push into the Japan into Japan and into the US um, and it, and it seems to be doing quite quite well on it so so since we had that a few days ago shares are up 13% on the news okay well now it's time to get going with our interview and we've got Darius McDermott who's the managing director of uh, Chelsea Financial Services. It also runs Fun Calibre, which is a, a free cheese website uh, that that has lots of details and different different funds. Um, give it a crack if you haven't had a look at that. Um, but I shall allow myself to to introduce him. Hope you enjoy the interview. So, management fees, the types of assets, the performance, perhaps the fund structure—they're all really useful things to look at when you're selecting funds for your portfolio. But digging deeper into the investment strategy that a fund manager uses can be far more interesting and insightful. The process behind whittling down investments from an entire market universe to find perhaps a predetermined type of business that you think will perform well in a particular financial state can be very important to consistent long-term performance. 
A few different broad approaches to investing have emerged over the years, which are referred to as investing styles. So today, we're going to speak to Darius McDermott, who is a managing director at Chelsea Financial Services, to explain a little bit more about what they are and how they work. Darius, so welcome to the pod. Great to talk to you, Marcus. So let's start with you know, what an equity investing style is and why they're important to understand. Well, a style is a basic strategy or philosophy to describe an investment approach that is used traditionally by a fund manager or a professional investor. There are different types of style. Uh, I know we're going to focus more on the value and growth, but there are also momentum and quality styles as well. And I think for a, a, an investor, it is important to understand if they're buying a fund or an investment trust or an ETF or whatever it might be, what type of style it is you're getting with that uh, investment so you can try and make a, a, a grown-up judgment as to whether or not um, you know, it's the sort of thing you want to invest in. We've had some very strong periods of time in history where the value styles have outperformed and then other time, period of times, most notably really the great tech boom and bust in the late 90s where growth was the dominating factor. And that factor can have a huge differential in the returns that investors make. Okay, well, let's start with the oldest style then in the investing world, which is value. So what do we mean by this? How are returns generated with a value style? Uh, Value style generally means trying to buy something cheaper than the sum of its parts. So companies' share prices go up and down. And sometimes they would be at a bit of a premium where they actually they're trading above um, the sort of value of the company or, or its, its assets. And other times for various different reasons, companies can be very out of favor um, in stock markets. They tend to be unloved or contrarian companies. And when they're out of favor, they tend to trade cheaper, not only than the average market company, but cheaper than their own history and cheaper than other shares on the company. And, you know, it, the old saying of value investing, you know, if you buy something cheap and sell it, or buy something that's got value and sell it when it's more expensive, that's how you make money. So that's the sort of um, basic idea to value investing. Okay. And uh, just out of interest, you know, and quite briefly, how, how, how do you value, how do you know whether a share price is cheap or expensive? You know, how do you know what its value is? Well, that generally tends to be the job of a professional investor. Um, actually putting a value on each individual share in a company is not an easy thing to do. There are lots of different um, factors that go into it. So if you're selling something or making something, what are you selling it for? What are the profits on that? What are the margins? How much, when you reinvest in your business, do you what, what, what future returns do you make? So actually valuing a company is more difficult. What you can do with some fairly simple um, Googling or or searching on the internet is to try and find what a range the share has traded in over a period of time. So, you know, you might often see a a, a fairly mature company and when it's cheap, it trades at £5 and when it's expensive, it trades at £15. And it may well be that the sector is back in favour or that a new management have come in and are invigorating that company. And it may well be that the company was perfectly solid, it's just out of favour, whereas 
the stock market can be, um, you know, it can really favor certain styles or sectors. Uh, post the pandemic, clearly we've seen a lot of companies which have well-established online platforms for sales and distribution do very well. Whereas old style um, pubs and leisure and restaurants, which as we know were shut, couldn't make any sales at all. So um, the stock market very much punished uh, one type of share in that environment and uh, rewarded the other type. So it is difficult to do, but you can have a look at a range of something trades in. The basic value asymmetric is something called the PE ratio, which is the um, price to earnings. So if a company has a PE ratio of 10, and again, this is readily available on the internet, it means you're paying £10 for £1 of the company's earnings. And you can generally find out what is the average PE across a stock market. So if the average PE is 15, and you're looking at a company with a PE of 10, you can see that it is at quite a big discount to the market. And that's the sort of area that the value investor looks for. Okay, okay, good. So you're sort of looking at financial ratios, which which might give an idea of that price, how that price is relative to other metrics within within a business, things like its sales or its revenues or its earnings, as you say. So it's like its profits and things like that. Absolutely. Um, how, who would you say is the best known value investor out there? Well, I think it, it, it would be um, widely agreed that Benjamin Graham was the sort of father of value investing. Uh, he... You know, he wrote uh, greatly um, after the war uh, from sort of Columbia Business School around the intelligent investor, I think was the, the, the most famous of his, his books. But he was all about trying to buy something that actually is worth a pound for 50p. And, you know, that, that was you know, looking for shares that were valued less than the intrinsic value of, of say, the company's assets or services. There have been a number of other high-profile value investors. I think a lot of people consider Warren Buffett to be a value investor. Um, but John Templeton, Jim Rogers, and Mark Mobius, you know, these are some of the sort of the, the granddaddies of, of, of value investing. And, um, yeah, it's interesting you talk about Benjamin Gray. I mean, uh, yeah, often called the father of value investing, isn't he? But, you know, post the, the crash that we had in 1929, there are a lot of cheap companies around. And I guess it might be fair to say since then, you know, markets have, have gotten a little bit more efficient in the way in which uh, information is sort of priced in. How, how has value been performing in recent years? Well, as I, as I said earlier, investment style can actually be a, the dominating factor. And post-financial crisis, when interest rates hit then lows in March of 2009, pretty much across the globe, we then had the best part of a decade where growth massively outperformed value as a style. Good growth investors obviously outperformed by more and bad value investors or poor value investors underperformed by more. So if post the financial crisis, the only decision you made was I want to invest in growth, it was the correct decision to make. It would also have led you to um, one of the growthy uh, markets in the world, which is the States, where we were actually seeing companies 
that looked like the, the darlings in 2000 or late 90s, early 2000s, actually some of those companies were now maturing into absolute growth powerhouses. Um, it's not impossible for a stock at one stage in its life to be a value stock and actually then return to sort of growth investing. So the, for the last decade, it's been growth all the way up until the uh, early part of November 2020, when we had the announcement of successful vaccine trials. That then led um, to a very sharp rotation, if only short-lived for about six months, where value outperformed um, quite dram dramatically. But still, if you look back over five or 10 years, it's, it's growth style all the way, I'm afraid. But it, but it could we could have have seen a rotation that means it's it's not you know value's not dead. I mean that that's the thing where we stand today. Yeah, I mean look, I think we have to be grown up about this. I am in a fortunate position where I get to meet lots and lots of fund managers, and you know they pretty much all think the way they're doing it is is the best way. Uh, I can take a slightly more holistic view uh, that there's lots of dis good ways of running money. What we don't know is which strategy is going to be in favour in any one period of time. Um, when we, we run some of our own funds here, and whilst growth has been the dominating factor, we did have a bit of value in our portfolios, which then led you know, to, to the sort of strong returns which we had over that six-month period when there was that rotation. And we didn't know when it was going to come, but we just always felt you wanted to have some balance in your portfolio and I think that's broadly a sensible thing to do. Okay, well, let's get on to then growth. Do you want to describe what, what the growth style is then? Yeah, I mean, again, it, it, growth sort of covers a lot of things, but basically mean your company is growing faster than the market. Now, that could be earnings growth, it could be profits growth, or it could be margins growth. Or if you're doing everything right, it could be all of the, all of the above. So if you're selling more than everybody else and making more money on every time you sell something, you will make more profit growth. Um, sometimes growth companies can actually be loss making. They are often newer companies investing in new technology, but they can actually be growing as a business. They can be growing their sales um, exponentially, but it doesn't actually mean in the early stages of their lives that they're profitable. Uh, so, Growth in itself doesn't just mean profit. It just means, you know, if I was selling 10 things, next year I'm selling 20, and the year after I'm selling 40. And if I can actually start making more money every time I sell something or build something or manufacture something or distribute something, then I may be growing at a, a higher rate than the market. And what that tends to mean when we go back to our favoured and most common valuation metric, that... If the average stock on a market, going back to our earlier example, is on a P-E ratio of, say, 15, my growth stocks are going to be on P-E ratios of higher than that and often quite a lot higher than that. So they can actually, as you say, even if they're especially they're the type of company that isn't making any money or is loss making, then they can seem insane relative to what you might call a, a value stock but I suppose it's this kind of maybe describe them as one looking cheap and the other looking quite expensive is maybe how you might describe a value versus a growth stock I, I think you, you can say that as a generic thing but mm. the growth investor would counter that 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 comment with it I may be more expensive than the market but I'm not as more expensive than the growth that I'm delivering 
So if the market is delivering earnings growth of 10% and you're delivering earnings growth of 30%, you should be on a premium to that market um, because you know, the value of your goods and your profits and, and your margins and your earnings are, are, are at a substantial premium to the market. So you, your shares should be trading more expensive. Then it gets into relative value as to whether or not I, my shares are overvalued or undervalued compared to that growth. And again, this is not straightforward for retail investors to work out unless you are a proper hobbyist and you have a good accounting background, but B, plenty of time to, to look into report accounts and be able to read them. Who is a good, a well-known growth investor then? Are there any, are there any to point out here? Yeah. So as you rightly said, sort of value is a older discipline. Um, funnily enough, there's not that many, what you would call historic real high profile growth investors. Probably one of the earliest investors um, was a, a gentleman called Thomas Rowe Price. He did believe that if you invested in companies that were growing faster than the market, that you could make better returns. He went on to found a very, very now big firm um, called T. Rowe Price, um, who uh, are a global business. They not just American, but he, he was an American. Another well-known uh, investor or, or growth investor was Peter Lynch. He ran um, a fund called the Magellan Fund, a Fidelity Asset Manager in the late 70s, early so late 70s and 80s. Um, very successfully, you know, using a growth strategy, returned 29.2% per annum for the tenure of his fund, which was more than double the S&P over <laughs> that time. So um, mm. I think he's a growth investor. When I look across the spectrum today, I think it would be um, an oversight were we not to look at the likes of Bailey Gifford as a firm, because at a firm wide level, they are growth investors and they have strategies that invest in high growth, um, as well as sort of compound and special sets as well. So they're, they're, they are you know, probably some of the most obvious growth investors today. And just quickly, you know, why? I mean, you've mentioned over the past decade, it's been you know, growth has been the thing to be in. Why? why? Well, that's a good question. Um, what we ended up post-financial crisis was an environment where, don't forget, interest rates had never been this low ever. When the, when the UK base rate was lowered to 50 basis points or 0.5 of a percent, that was the lowest it had been for 250 years. So we were in unusual financial times. Uh, also, what was happening was central banks were printing money called quantitative easing to buy their own government bonds. And this just meant we ended up in an environment of very low inflation and you know, very low interest rates. And you know, the, the basic, what do I put, you know, if I put my money in cash, cash gave you no return. So people looked to pay up for growth investing. And as I say, we were also in a decade where the internet was finally starting to be monetized. Now, whether that's a company well known to everybody like Amazon or sort of re retailers um, like ASOS or Boohoo, they don't have shops. These are retailers with no shops. They're just websites. And you know, they were able to grow their, their brands and their marketing and their distribution uh, to, to make money and you know they were growing up much faster than the market so um 
And there just has been a long period of time where value stocks, and let's just pick on the UK stock market, stocks that would have been deemed to be value are things like financials. Uh, banks generally need higher interest rates to make more money, and they haven't had that. Um, until the last 18 months, commodities had been out of favour as the sort of big building that went on in China and emerging markets had slowed. Oil, another sector that was sort of quite unloved, very bad from an ESG type of perspective uh, as, as focus has gained on that. So if you sort of think of some of those big sectors that dominate the UK stock, they just, they just were set parts of, you know, they, they were just not doing very well. Whereas the growth stocks primarily um, in, in America, as we know, uh, the famous fangs, um, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, but who doesn't have a device with some connection to Microsoft Cloud? You know, they're in every part of your ecosystem. And, um, you know, in, in the early part of the 2000s, actually Microsoft was deemed to be a value stock, uh, had a good dividend yield, which is quite unusual for, for US tech companies. And it was out of favor and it was their first mover advantage in things like cloud computing and web services where they, they just went into a massive growth phase following on from their growth phase in the noughties where they put software on everybody's PCs in the world. So, um, you know, it was a growth stock in the nineties and the early noughties, it was a value stock. And now, you know, very much a, a growth stock again with a lower dividend yield and a high PE. Mm. Yeah, a really interesting point you make there. It's not just not just low interest rates, but also the prominence of these enormous tech companies that were the classic kind of smaller growth companies, but suddenly became what are now trillion dollar companies. And yeah, no, they're so huge. you yeah. can't ignore them, can you? I mean, if you invest in US markets, then uh, then they're usually a big slice of them. So yeah, yep. interesting. Yep. Okay, well, let's get on then to the third third style that I want to talk about, and that's income. So what is this? How are returns generated in income? So companies at various different stages of their lifestyle, if they are making good returns and, and actually you know, producing cash, there's sort of two things they can do. Well, there's a number of things they can do. One, they could buy their own share, shares back, which is called share buyback, which should mean the value of the shares go up. The other thing, of course, and you know, very um, mature thing to do for companies is to pay your shareholders a dividend. Um, lots of companies actually have dividend targets as part of their, their, their mission statement. You know, we want to sell products so that we can earn money and give our shareholders a dividend. So income style actually could be value or it could be growth, but it's companies that are primarily at a stage in their life, whether they're value or growth, that actually are having a dividend that they can then pay out to shareholders or fund managers who run income funds. And it's it's an interesting one, this, with dividends, because it's seen as a, it's a very good discipline for companies, isn't it? Because if you are paying out that spare cash rather than wasting it on things, and you've got this dividend kind of target in your mind, then that's seen as quite, quite a good financial discipline, isn't it? Absolutely. You couldn't be more right. What's more, some companies, not only do they want to give you a dividend every year, they actually make it part of their plan to pay you more in dividends every year. And that's an, uh, one might argue that's a, also a very good 
um, discipline and a way for a company to operate is to try and you know give you giving it give you even more income um, next year th than this. One has to be a little careful that companies don't over distribute their income because companies do need to reinvest in themselves. Potentially, they want to buy other companies who may be stealing their market share and they may be reasonably valued. And often you get companies that they're doing the same thing and you get synergies of costs. If you've got two companies doing the same thing, if you put them together, they can often be more valuable than the sum of the two parts. Um, so, but, but not all of those mergers and acquisitions, as you rightly state, are, are good. Sometimes a company buys another company and it actually destroys value when they would have just been better off paying dividends. And, you know, people need income to live. You cannot live on savings in cash anymore and you haven't been able to do since March 2009. And if you can buy a company or a fund, uh, as more people tend to do, um, you get a mixture of shares, the different types of companies, all paying a dividend, and then that fund or investment trust might pay you out those yields. So um, it, it's a hugely important part uh, and style. It's not a style specifically. If I had to say it, income investing tends to have a bit more value style, but um, you can still get good growth companies that, that, that pay handsome dividends. And we already touched on Microsoft earlier. Yeah, and I think one of the big advantages of, of dividend income as well is that it's good at keeping up with inflation because, of course, it comes from the profits of companies and they can pass on any of their rising costs to their consumers and, and put their prices up and therefore hopefully give you a dividend that, that, that beats or at least keeps up with inflation as well. And that's a big, yes, that's a big exactly. thing to think about at the moment. Um, Yes, it, it absolutely is, whilst inflation appears a bit stubborn at the moment. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to get you, just to, to finish this off, is to go through some suggestions. You know, I'm going to remind our listeners these are not recommendations. We don't know your personal circumstances. But, um, yeah, Darius, if you want to start off with a maybe a good value fund. Um, so if you're looking for a value fund, and I'm going to maybe even tick two of your boxes with one go here, but uh, Schroeder Income is run by uh, the Schroeder Value team. They now run uh, a vast number of funds with, with, with good assets, but they start by looking at the, f they, they put companies into 10 buckets and they start by looking at companies in the three cheapest buckets, believing that if you buy cheaper stocks, the returns you get over five and 10 years will, will, will be better. But they also have an income fund um, and it has done it's done very well when value is in favor but it pays you a, 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 a good yield and growing yield you know just for owning it uh, another core vehicle which i think investors may or may not be familiar with is the city of london uh, investment trust been run by the same fund manager job curtis for um over 30 years now and you know Investment trusts do have a, a difference to them than, than open-ended funds, which actually they can hoard some of their income or store some in good years and use it to pay out when dividends um, or companies are struggling to pay dividends, as was the case in 2020 due to the pandemic. 
Whereas in an open-ended fund, whichever whatever income comes into your fund in the year, you have to pay out. So that's one um, investment trust and one value-dominated income trust for consideration. The other thing you could do is, of course, you could look for a global fund. Those first two I've mentioned focus on UK companies. And I'm going to throw a few out here. Um, a really good, consistent global income fund is Fidelity Global Dividend. The manager likes good companies that are quality, but he also likes to not overpay for them. So he doesn't go buying lots of expensive companies. Doesn't mean he's a value manager either, but he likes companies that have some dividend with the potential to grow that dividend. Uh, M&G Global Dividend run by Stuart Rhodes actually looks for companies that have that mission statement that they're not only going to pay dividend, but they're going to grow their dividend every year. So that could be a good fund for those looking for a growing income stream. Maybe they don't need a high income today, but would like some income, but they know that these things can compound and get you a growing income over time. Okay. Do Have you got any in the growth sphere then? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think, it, as I say from earlier, it's hard to look past T. Rowe Price and Bailey Gifford. Uh, T. Rowe Price have a global focused equity growth fund. It's quite a mouthful, but it does exactly what it says on the tin. It's a global growth fund. And for those looking for maybe the purest growth, you could look at something like Bailey Gifford American. Uh, they do have global funds as well, but they run some ex some really good US funds and their American growth fund um, taps into those you know high growth trends and companies, not just big tech. They do do big tech, but um, you know they also back companies in sort of medical tech and, and some of those areas as well. So there's a couple for your growth investors. Darius, thanks very much for, for joining us on the pod. Thank you. Marcus, my pleasure. So big thanks to Darius for talking to me about those styles. I mean, I think, I think it's important because all the, you know, there's a case for all three really, um, you know, growth has done quite well over the past decade and some stocks do look expensive, but the reason why they've done well is because these quite well protected business models and quite innovative ideas have managed to you know produce profits and keep growing those profits which you know it just sent share prices ever higher uh whereas you know value you know value tends to do well in sort of an environment that is you know a bit more punchy economic growth recovering out of out of recessions and and um you know higher inflation which is also what we're in so it's why over the past year we've also seen a little bit of a, a roll back and forth between those two sorts of styles and then i think from an income point of view as well the, the attractive thing about dividend income is companies have the ability to pass on you know higher cost inflation through through their prices and therefore that translates into their profits which means they can grow their dividends as well ahead of inflation you know they can do it's not guaranteed of course but of, co of course you know companies do have a good ability to do that whereas other safer assets uh do not and we're seeing very low interest rates obviously in in those in those safer assets so case for all three of course often the answer is a blend is is quite a sensible thing for your portfolio so it's good to be able to sort of identify those sorts of strategies well, that's about all we have time for today. Please send me any questions. If you have any, marcus at steps2investing.com. 
www.ghostbusters.com. Also, if you want the magazine, then don't forget to sign up on our site. And of course, please share the pod. But aside from that, happy investing. See you next time. Goodbye.